I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. I'm going to call this meeting of Charlottesville City Council to order. Let's begin with the Pledge of Allegiance, everyone. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, It's February 6th, 2017, in Charlottesville, Virginia. Seven people in suits are sitting on a platform. The walls behind them are gray. There's a large lighted board on their right, which has five names on it. I move the following resolution. And I'd like to read the following language into the record as the motion printed on our agenda is slightly different than what I had originally submitted. So, now therefore be it resolved that the city of Charlottesville shall remove the statue of Robert E. Lee from the park currently known as Lee Park, and be it further resolved that the park currently known as Lee Park shall be renamed, and be it further resolved that we hereby direct staff to bring council a range of recommended, recommended options for moving forward with decisions on destination, design, and park name within 60 days for our consideration. Thank you. There are two votes. In one, the city council is voting to remove the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee from a downtown park. In the second vote, to change the name of the park. And the responses are mixed. Some people totally get it. Racism is bad. Let's not have monuments for it. It is a shameful contradiction that the Charlottesville of today, a seemingly righteous sanctuary city, still maintains statues of Confederate generals who defended the miserable conditions which caused our own flood of African-American refugees. The Sanctuary City Declaration reveals Charlottesville's empathy gap. Our town is willing to shelter international refugees, even if it means losing HUD funding. Yet we debate the cost of removing monuments of a white supremacist order that drove African-American refugees from our own town. We're tired of talk. We're tired of commissions. We're tired of promises down the road. We need action now. And I would add, you know, finally, that voting to remove the statue would be a good beginning point in the long road of transforming the city and resisting the Trump agenda. Thank you. This decision was a part of a big national debate happening all over the country, especially in the South. After the mass shooting at the church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015, the question of Confederate icons in public spaces started to heat up. By this time in 2017, dozens of statues had been taken down at courthouses, schools, public parks. Some of these had been done in the middle of the night to avoid violence. Because, and this was true in Charlottesville, some people really didn't want them taken down. Blacks don't have a corner on the market when it comes to anti-Semitism or hate. And all you with your blue signs, giving me each a thousand bucks. Thousand bucks, raise the money to move the statue instead of you paying for it. Tough guys, tough guys, right? On behalf of myself and my family and those who value art and history, please let this historical work of art stand. Robert E. Lee had the courage of his convictions to never take up arms against his home, his old Virginia. I simply can't believe we're even talking about this. There is no doubt that slavery was America's original and greatest sin. But this is not about that. This is about partisanship, politics, and cheap political points. All right, the motion carries three to two. So that decision, that vote, set forward a whole series of events. Shortly after, white nationalists who believe that the statue represents their, quote, heritage, sued to stop the changes. But those lawsuits didn't work, so by late spring of 2017, the rally started. Richard Spencer, a prominent white supremacist, you may know because he got punched in the face once when he was doing a TV interview, he organized one of these rallies in May. 
Rallygoers held torches and stood around the statue of Robert E. Lee that was supposed to be removed. Just a little, little vigil. In July, the Ku Klux Klan gathered about 50 people to protest the removal. And more than 1,000 counter-protesters showed up in response. That summer of 2017, Constance was 34 years old. I'm working as um, an executive assistant at an impact investment firm, and I have great colleagues. Um, I'm living in Washington, D.C. I, like many people, was feeling anxious and nervous about this sort of this very real resurgence of white nationalist violence. And I didn't know exactly what to do about it, but I knew that not doing anything wasn't an option. Um, I spent a lot of time reading um, about uh, the civil rights movement, and I spent a lot of time just sort of, you know, learning more about my family history, uh, about sort of this, like, the legacy that my family's led. So I'm a a descendant of enslaved people. um, And it's always been very important to me to, you know, to try to create a better future, but at the same time to acknowledge, to acknowledge the sacrifices that my family uh, has made for me. And that includes not just my blood family, but my family as in my larger community of of people who have uh, been impressed in this country. Constance had a friend who had been arrested counter-protesting the Klan rally in July. And uh, she told me that, you know, they're coming back and there will be many more of them this time. And I looked at her and I said, well, I'm coming. She said, are you sure? And I said, there's nothing, there's no part of me that could sit at home when I know that a couple hundred miles away, there's going to be the largest clans gathering, clansmen gathering, um, and gathering of white nationalists that uh, I believe that that I've been in close proximity to in my lifetime. Um, and so I made the decision in about 10 seconds to go just so you know, this is out of character for Constance. This isn't the kind of thing she just does. She's not a quick decision kind of person. She's not a thrill seeker. She's not impulsive. I am uh, a human being who is who is uh, generally risk averse, and I do not enjoy intentionally putting myself in high stress and high risk situations. It's a quick decision, but it's not an offhand decision. A lot of people would ask, why did she go? People asked Constance this, why did you go? I always struggle with this question because it's like if if you see that there's a, a building on fire, then you put water on it to try to put it out. There was nothing in me that, that would let me sit at home and watch this on television. I knew that it would be dangerous, and I knew that there was a potential for violence, But what I did not know at the time was that the violence would be inescapable. That's what I didn't know. Once the decision is made, Constance spends the next few weekends preparing, mentally, emotionally, physically. She's working with others who are going to build and strengthen relationships that might be helpful when they get there. And she's going there with a specific purpose— She isn't going there to get in faces. It's pretty much the opposite, actually. So I had trained to be what's called a de-escalator. And a de-escalator is exactly what it sounds like. And I've I've done de-escalation in the past at Actions, where basically there's um, a barrier between the person who is most vulnerable, who is committing the civil disobedience. And part of that barrier is me. 
uh, the de-escalators. And so let's say a very angry person comes up and says, I am very upset that you are committing civil disobedience. My job would be to try to keep some physical space in between the person who's committing the civil disobedience or who's participating in civil disobedience and the angry party. And also to try to talk to them, to try to calm them down, to try to de-escalate the situation. Constance knew there were lots of risks in heading to Charlottesville. There's a lot to be afraid of. Klansmen, white nationalists, neo-Nazis. I was actually more afraid of the police more than anything. So I was afraid um, of getting tear gassed by the police. So I had packed my bag. I had my goggles ready. Um, I had um, an extra shirt in my bag in case I did get pepper sprayed. Yeah, and I went and I got my helmet. And so I was expecting, I didn't know what to expect. I tried to just sort of prepare for everything. As Constance and her two friends get into the car after work on Friday, August 11th, and start that 120-mile drive from D.C., they know that all the hotels are booked, so they'll be staying at a camp that night. They know that the Unite the Right rally is supposed to start at noon the next day in Lee Park around the statue of Robert E. Lee. And they know that their plan is to go to a church when they arrive to gather with others. It's raining pretty hard as they drive. They stop for dinner. And then around 9 p.m., they start to get word from Charlottesville. They weren't expecting this gathering. About 250 white supremacists are descending on a field on the University of Virginia campus, carrying tiki torches. They start marching in lines, chanting, blood and soil, you will not replace us, and Jews will not replace us. Many of these people are not from Charlottesville. They aren't the people who were at the city council meeting. They've come from all over the U.S., some even from Canada. A group of 30 students from the University of Virginia meet them at a statue of Thomas Jefferson and circled the statue. The white supremacists stop and start making monkey noises and chant, White Lives Matter. And the police don't intervene. Suddenly there's a brawl, fists, those torches used as clubs, pepper spray, lighter fluid. It lasts for several minutes before the police finally intervene and break up the fighting. Everyone retreats to get ready for what they actually came to Charlottesville for, the rally on Saturday at noon. Later that Friday night, Constance arrives in Charlottesville. She'd been told by friends that it was too hostile and not to come to the church where she had planned to meet up with people. Instead, they went to a friend's hotel room and started packing backpacks for the next day. First aid supplies and uh, things that people may need when you go out to a protest. I didn't get very much sleep that night. I slept in a space with a lot of other people that I didn't know, but that, you know, in, in chatting with each other and talking about our concerns and our fears, we had, we had grown as close as someone can get in a few hours before you go to bed. The next morning, Saturday, is cloudy. It's August in Virginia, so it's already in the 70s, and it's just going to get hotter. The forecasts say it'll be 90 by the time the rally starts at noon. Constance heads to a gathering of counter-protesters to sort out roles. Who's going to be doing civil disobedience? Who will be doing de-escalation? For Constance and her friends... We had determined that we're not going to do any of that stuff because it was just too dangerous. It was just far too dangerous. And... We marched from a school together, and I was up near the front with a lot of the clergy because the clergy led the way. There were people who showed up there because they wanted to absorb violence. 
And and when I say absorb violence, I mean they put their their physical well-being, their physical and mental well-being on the line because they knew that the violence in that park was going to spill out into the community. And there are people in Charlottesville who are not very privileged, and those were the folks who, who would be attacked. And so, despite what you saw, there were acts of love, and there were acts of um, generosity, lots of strangers helping strangers. One of Constance's friends is serving as a medic. People are dedicated to handing out water and food. There are people who are there just to focus on the emotional needs of counter-protesters. Some of those clergy people gather at one point and start singing, This Little Light of Mine. While 20 feet from them, white supremacists chant, Our blood, our soil. Constance makes her way over to a park. It's nearby to Lee Park, which is where the white supremacists are gathering. At Lee Park, around the statue everyone is here for, tension has been building since early morning. There are people carrying clubs and shields, some with pistols and long guns. Nearby restaurants and businesses have closed down. Police are lining the park, but do not interfere. At 11 a.m., just an hour before the protest is scheduled, a group of white nationalists approach Lee Park from the side. Counter-protesters form a line to block them, and suddenly they're fighting, and the police don't intervene. There are clubs, fists, chemical sprays. It takes 20 minutes for the police to step in. They suddenly declare an unlawful assembly and order everyone out. A state of emergency is declared, the rally will not go forward. The white supremacists start to move towards downtown and another park about a mile away. The neo-Nazis and the Klansmen, they were, they had left. They were leaving. The counter-protesters pretty much stay put. For Constance and her group, they weren't sure yet if it was safe enough to go home. You know, there were, there were some of us who were celebrating. There were people in shops who were clapping for us when we took this final, like, quick march around the downtown area. And I thought it was over. And this is something that I really struggle with still is that, you know, at the highest point for me of that entire terrifying day, as soon as I let my guard down, you know, as soon as I realized that I'm going to walk out of here without a scratch— that's when that car came barreling down the street. And I remember seeing, I remember seeing it coming. I remember thinking, we're going to get struck. And the next thing I saw was just bodies flying everywhere. And, and the sound of the bodies flying sounds like, it sounded like crushing an aluminum can almost. Um, that's something that I will absolutely never forget. Those sounds have haunted me and will continue to haunt me because those sounds those sounds sort of just like injected themselves into my brain. I don't I don't remember getting struck. What I remember is seeing the car coming, hearing the sounds, the bodies were flying and I mean they were flying high. And I lost time. So I remember waking up and everyone was was screaming, get up, get up, get up. He's putting it in reverse. He's reversing. And so I had like, I had tunnel vision. I couldn't see well, but all I knew was that I was trying to grab onto people to sort of hoister my way up from the ground. And, and I started hobbling or hopping or I just I was moving to get away from there. And the next thing I know is two people grabbed me. There is a, a very strong black man and then there is a very strong black woman. And they grabbed me and they started helping me to, I guess, we, I guess maybe we turned a corner. And at that point, they didn't know what happened. And so I, I was still in such a state of shock that I, I don't think I was coherent. I don't know if I was making any sense. 
But he kept asking me, what happened? What happened? And then I just, I lost it and I started screaming. I screamed at him and I said, we got hit by a car. And that was the very moment when things really started to, like my my fight or flight response was sort of coming down a little bit. And I started trying to have to think about what's next. What do we do from here? Where do we go? And so they sat me down on a, on a stoop next to... Um, I think in front of a, a front of a, a storefront. And I was speaking with someone. Someone someone shows up and he says, Nobody go anywhere. We don't know we don't know what's going on. We don't know if they've planted bombs anywhere. We don't know if there's another attack. We need to just we're just this is an open space. We're just gonna try to stay here for a little while. And um and shortly thereafter I remember a white woman came up to me. Um, There was a white woman and a white man, and they came up to me because they saw that I had been injured, and they said, we have a car, can we take you somewhere? And this is the first time in my life that I was so fearful of all the white people around me that I looked at them and I said, absolutely not. No, I'm not going with you. I don't know who the hell you are. Jose, good evening. The streets are calm at this very moment, but behind me, police are still working the scene here where the fatal accident occurred. Witnesses saying that this driver came plowing into a crowd of counter-protesters. People went flying in every direction. We had at least one fatality here. A short time ago, they did arrest a suspect in this, but we don't know his identity. The police chief moments ago said that this was, in fact, an intentional act. In the entirety of this incident here in Charlottesville, more than three dozen people injured. This has been a day of heated racist rhetoric and violence. We'll be right back. And we're back. Constance has just been hit by a car driven by a white supremacist. It's horrifying and disorienting, and she's focused on her own survival. She's not focused on social media. Of course she's not. Why would anyone be? I'm generally a private person. So, you know, I don't I don't overshare. I don't post a lot of pictures of myself. I don't. Um, I've always really respected my privacy. I didn't post on social media before I went that I was going to this event because I'm just I'm just a private person. What are your expectations of your personal privacy when you're there for the weekend? I, I, I didn't think about it, to be frank. I didn't think about it because I wasn't going to do anything that was newsworthy. You know, I wasn't actually going there to fight any Nazis. I wasn't going to to be a hero. I was just going to hold space in a park. I had no no expectation that anything would happen to me that people would actually want to want to see or that I would be involved in anything that people would want to see. So here's the thing, social media can be a joy. It can be a fun way to waste time. It can also be absolutely the worst thing on the planet. Because even when you're a person in the world who doesn't even really choose to participate, it can sometimes choose you to participate. When you're a part of something big and someone films it, you can become content. And things can get ugly. After Constance was hit by that car, she finds people who could help her. She gets out of Charlottesville. She goes home. And the next day, her phone starts blowing up. There's something on Facebook. HBO's Vice News had been in Charlottesville. 
They'd had a reporter embedded with the white nationalists, KKK, and Nazis. They did interviews, filmed the Tiki March, the fights, the rally, and the car attack. And the trailer for their documentary had just gone live. And in that trailer was Constance. Just like she described, being led by two people, stopping, yelling out that she was hit by a car and just screaming. And it's definitely me at the, during the worst moments of my life. When my life took a turn for the worst, that, um, yeah, everybody got to see that. The very worst moment of Constance's life is now content. Not even a day after it happened, when she hasn't even started to heal physically or process it mentally, it's a video on Facebook. And Constance finds out this is totally legal, 100% above board. I asked someone who does marketing and communication who is very proficient and very good at what he does like if I could reach out to them of like what could happen and he basically told me that that is part of public domain so if anyone is walking down the street I can take their picture now it's different if I take their picture and try to sell it and make money and it's not for newsworthy purposes this is true Hans told me this right away I thought it was not true but it's true And this is something I think a lot of people forget or maybe don't even really know that when we're in public spaces, we don't have control of our image and we are pretty much constantly being filmed, sometimes passively for security, sometimes actively. Even when we don't intend it, we can become a part of a news story and that moment can get put in the news and looped and shared over and over and over and over again. Constance is seeing this on Facebook, and she starts to do the one thing we all know not to do, but are unable not to do. She starts to read the comments. I think I only read a couple, and, you know, there were people who were saying, oh, she's faking it. Oh, um, you know, I think one person said something like, I'm an EMT, and... When people are actually hurt, they don't scream that way or something like that. Um, and so then I just I just backed away from it. There's really nothing like online comments to just make you not believe in the um, dignity and honor of all human life. I'll tell you that much. I don't think I have the power to be a Unitarian because when I get on the Internet, I'm like, oh, no, people are the fucking worst. <laughs> like, just the absolute worst. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. God. Yeah. Absolute worst. And yes, Constance understands that Vice News is a news organization and that without that video, which got more than six million views, there might not have been as much attention to the situation. You know, I can I can sort of rationalize that the Vice News clip was for newsworthy purposes. But now that it's public, the clip spreads quickly. People were sending the clip to my parents. And my mother was sick. And um and that that pushed me pretty far into a very a very numb place. And suddenly, the clip takes on a life of its own. It moves from being passively invasive to being an active weapon. Can you explain to our audience um, what doxing is and also what the experience, like, meant for you? So, it stands for documenting. And doxing is when people will take private information, sensitive information, 
uh, that they find about you, whether it's on the internet or otherwise, and they will post it to a hostile audience. That is what doxing is. With the intention, as I understand it, of basically making it possible for online harassment to make the jump into your real life. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. To make the jump into your real life. I was not fully doxxed, fortunately. I didn't find my address, but my name and my location, like who I am, was published. And that was scary enough. Because I had a knee injury, I wasn't able to live in my apartment. So I was living with a friend in Maryland. And that provided me with a level of safety because I figured that potentially if someone does figure out what my address is, then I'm not even there. Do you get on the internet and look for yourself just to make sure that nobody's posted something that would... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I do this. Uh, it's actually really horrific, to be honest. I get on a couple of these white nationalist websites to look for myself and to look for other people. And bam, I see people I know. I see their pictures. I see um, their names. I was fortunate that I didn't see my name, but it's deeply disturbing that people that I care about are still being trolled this way online, on the Internet. It can be easy to look at this from the outside and say, but, I mean, nothing happened. No one actually put you in danger. So it's not that big of a deal. I mean, yes, you got hit by a car, but you lived. And besides, our phones track us everywhere. Our information is just out there all the time anyways. And also, let me tell you, if you're like, not my information, yes, yours. It's out there on some part of the web or the dark web, where you live, where you work, what your passwords are. It's all out there already. So how is this different? Well, this is active. Really, the point of doxing isn't necessarily that someone comes to your house or even that your information is out there in case someone wanted to come to your house. It's that someone is hunting you and people that you know, and that they could come at you. Any good suspense movie knows it's not about the monster or the killer or the whatever jumping out at you. It's about knowing that there's a monster and that any moment it could jump out at you. It's a constant smashing of your adrenaline buttons, your cortisol buttons, your PTSD buttons over and over all at the same time. It's fear and terror, and that's the point. And that's why it's scary to be a target. And doxing is legal, or at least if it's just uncovering publicly available information and resharing it, there's nothing that can be done about it. Not in court. So any sort of response to a vigilante attack is a vigilante defense. Constance stops using her full name online anywhere or even in public in anything she does if she can help it. She tries her best to keep from being identified. And this is all happening while the rest of life is happening. While Constance's mom is sick, while Constance is going to work and paying her bills, all of this stuff is happening on top of a world that hasn't stopped spinning. Constance still hasn't had time to deal with the physical and mental trauma she experienced in Charlottesville. And now she's worried about what will happen next. I just, I felt really numb. And I wanted, I wanted to prove to myself that I was okay. Um, and so I think I was, I was going through the motions, but I wasn't really feeling anything. Um, I felt, I felt some, what I could feel was anxiety. Um... Yeah, I felt anxiety, but I didn't feel, I didn't, I didn't experience the range of emotions that I normally do because I was shutting down. We'll be right back. We're back. 
Constance is living and trying not to live in fear of what comes next. Have you ever heard of um, this analogy that someone named David Foster Wallace uses of there's an old fish and he, you know, he's swimming and he swims past these two young fish and the old fish says, hey, how's the water? And then the young fish says, water, what's that? That's sort of how how my PTSD set on. Like it was it was so pervasive that I couldn't even see it and I couldn't feel it. Like I wasn't performing well at work. And I just thought, like, why in the hell am I not able to get this? Why am I not why am I turning everything in late? Why is I was even having nightmares and I was getting frustrated, like, geez, that was a shitty nightmare. That was a terrible nightmare. Maybe tomorrow night it'll be better. Like not even acknowledging really that I was that I was some in some of the deepest suffering that I had ever felt. It was something that was just so all-encompassing. And I realize now that that I believe one of the things that happened was if I'm to take a scale and put joy on one side and extreme sorrow and suffering on the other side, I think my PTSD manifested itself in a way that muted all the joy, the whole the joy side, and that sort of augmented the suffering side. And so I was feeling a lot of sorrow and despair and just wondering, like, oh, it's been a month. Oh, it's been two months. Oh, it's been four months. I should just snap out of this, like, thinking to myself, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? Why am I so sad all the time? And... Intellectually, I knew that I had been changed. But I don't know if there was some resistance to actually acknowledging that or not. Constance's leg that was hit in the attack, it still hurts. It continues to cause her pain. Six months after Charlottesville and the attack... Constance's mother, who had been sick this whole time, she dies. And then it really hits Constance. That's when I knew. That's when I knew that there is something, something very real here that will take over me, that will consume me if I don't sit with myself and start to make my main priority healing. Part of that healing is to reclaim that day that continues to hurt her so much, August 12th. Constance throws herself into organizing her own rally in Washington, D.C. for the upcoming one-year anniversary of the attack. This was one of the hardest things that I have ever planned and that I have pulled off in my entire life because it leaned on every fear and insecurity that I had. I felt... Like, you know, I felt almost personally responsible for the safety of everyone that showed up. And that's when I started being more forthcoming with using my first and last name, because I knew that it would be important to speak with the media. To, you know, because a lot of people were curious, oh, what are you planning? Can you tell me more about this rally? A year earlier, she'd had the most traumatic day of her life. Now she had organized a rally to center marginalized groups targeted by the ideology of the alt-right. At the Freedom Plaza in Washington, D.C., in front of a CNN camera she knows is there, knows is capturing the whole thing. The rally goes well, the press goes well. The healing she made a priority seems to be going well. It's not over but it's starting to look good. Constance is taking control of this day. It's not going to own her. And a few days later... That's when I get a text message from my sister that says, you're in Black Klansman. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Black Klansman is a movie set in the 1970s. It's a dramatized biopic about the first African-American detective in the Colorado Springs Police Department. The detective then tries to join and infiltrate the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. 
It was released on the anniversary of the attack, the same day as Constance's rally. It's a massively successful movie. It won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. It was nominated for five other Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director for Spike Lee. And at the end of the movie, there's a montage of modern events of Klan activity and white supremacy. And that montage features footage of the car attack. And it shows that clip of Constance reacting to being hit by the car. And I think the producers and the directors used this footage so that they could actually show that we may not have made as much progress that we think as we think we have. It was in a way that was um, sort of pieced together to a certain extent for entertainment purposes because it was a it wasn't a documentary and um, that that really uh, it felt really dirty and it felt like I was like all of those wounds that were blown wide open all over again. It blew a hole into whatever empowerment that I felt after I planned that rally. And so many people showed up. And, you know, I felt like I was reclaiming a part of me that died in Charlottesville by creating a place where people could come together and take a stand a physical stand against hate, against this resurgence of white nationalist violence. And maybe that lasted for two days. And then it just blew up in my face because I found out I was in this movie. And it all comes, all comes back. Did you see the movie? Um, I saw the movie... I very reluctantly paid my, I think, 12 or $13. And I couldn't really focus because I was just waiting for the end because I needed to know what everyone else saw. I needed to see that for myself. So I, I, could, I don't think I can even tell you really what the movie's about, but I know uh, that I was on pins and needles the whole time waiting to see what everyone else had seen. Do you think there's value in the message they were trying to convey with that montage? Absolutely. Absolutely there's value. Um, There is no question in my mind. However, I think there is... Because this feels like exploitation to me, Nora. And I feel like there's a way to advance our culture and make people aware of things without harming the people who are willing to take on tremendous amounts of risk. I think there's a lot of value there, but I think there's a way to do it. That's not it. You know, it it gives me it gives me absolutely no joy to to criticize the producer of this film because I have in the past um, found many of his films meaningful and I appreciate that many times he presents things through a racial lens Um, but in this instance no one asked me if they could use my suffering to drive home a point nor did they ask me if they could use my suffering to I hate to say this but it feels like to advance their career I really hate to say this it just (sighs) and you know it's something that is just something that's so hard to settle within me that without my consent, something that may be considered newsworthy in one place and then for entertainment or not in another place could be useful to everyone else and so harmful to me. 
and so very, very harmful to me. We've said before that two things can be true. It can be a powerful movie, it can be an important message, and it can still hurt Constance. And it does. When she heard about this, Constance reached out to the filmmaker. She went to the website, she filled out a form, she didn't hear back. And we also reached out to the producers of Black Klansmen to understand how the decision was made and whether any money was exchanged for the use of the footage, and we also have not heard back. But we did find an interview in The Hollywood Reporter with a producer of the movie, Raymond Mansfield, about why the team included the footage from Charlottesville. Mansfield said, I'm quoting here, We knew it was tricky because if done wrong, it could feel exploitative, but we decided shortly after it happened to include that footage. It ties the entire movie together in the most profound and emotionally effective way. We thought it was a stroke of genius. I mean, yeah, uh, many people agree. I, I agree. I, see, I saw the movie. Wow. Those clips put a very fine point on it. It was very powerful for me, but I'm not in the movie. It's not the worst day of my life rolling just before the credits. So how I feel about it is pretty irrelevant. It feels grimy. It feels, when I think about it for a long time, it's almost hard for me to catch my breath. I don't want to be remembered that way. I don't want people to recognize me in that film. That's not how I want people to to remember to send me an email. Oh, hey, how are you doing? I saw you in Black Klansman. That looked really terrible. Now I'm going to you know, express some form of pity. No thanks. No thanks. I wish that when people saw that, they would be empowered to act, you know, and be empowered to to say, you know what, I'm going to try to be a better member of my community or whatever, As opposed to, oh my gosh, I'm really, uh, that's terrible. I'm really sorry. You know, this is how that made me feel. Because that's usually what they say. When I saw that, I felt like blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, that must be so terrible for you. It's like, yeah, actually it is. This is really complicated and tough. I've said before how lonely it is when people don't bring up the hard thing you've been through. And it is hard. But the difference is that most of our traumas are personal. When they're over, they exist in our brains and our bodies, but not in fully documented and widely disseminated digital files that will live forever. Most of our traumas won't pop up on our phones over and over and over and over again in perpetuity. So it's different when it's coming back at you over and over in any and every space you occupy. It's different when it isn't a conversation, when it's someone speaking for you or about you instead of letting you speak for yourself. It's different when your story ends up belonging to everyone or feels like it does at least. It's different when you don't have control, and maybe we never have control over our story. I mean, not really. Anyway, but the speed and frequency at which we can be reminded of that lack of control is so modern and so disorienting. And I don't I don't get any warning. Like there's no warning when I get a text message or an email or a Facebook message that someone has seen me in this. So I could just be going about my business, maybe having a good day, maybe not. And bam, there you go. There's another message. Keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. And. I really wish, I really, really, really wish that I had not been captured on film. I really wish that my suffering was not the sensational piece that people wanted to see. I really wish that my screaming and my shrieking or whatever the hell it was that made people want to use this footage. I really wish that that did not exist. 
but it, it but it does exist because it happened. I just wish that that it wasn't on video. That's been out for the masses to see. A face in the crowd, not the face of the event. This, this right here, this conversation, is part of Constance taking control. Not over what happened, but over what happens next. About what her story is and what it means. Constance is making it her work to speak out about what happened and to make sure that things like the attack in Charlottesville never happen again. Constance doesn't regret going to Charlottesville. Yeah, she wishes she wouldn't have been injured, but she doesn't regret participating in that rally. She just wishes the story didn't belong to everyone else. I I understand that people want to know what happened that day. But I'm still a human, and I was brutalized. And I want people to see me in ways that I choose for them to see me. I don't want them to see me reliving trauma that I will have with me for the rest of my life. I don't want them to see me experiencing the things that I have nightmares about. And I don't have a choice. I'm Nora McNerney, and this has been terrible. Thanks for asking. Our senior producer is Hans Buto. Marcel Malikibu is our assistant producer. Hannah Meacock Ross is our project manager. Jordan Turgeon. Jordan Turgeon probably has a title. Probably. Thank you to Twyla Dang for her help on this episode, and thank you so much, Constance, for sharing your story with us. You can find me online at noraborealis.com or on Instagram and Twitter at noraborealis. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, and we are a production of American Public Media. We're going to take a little break for a couple weeks, and then we'll be back at the end of summer. <laughs> <laughs>